This morning we're looking at Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through to verse 30, standing fast for the gospel. Standing fast for the gospel. Up until now, the Apostle Paul's epistle to the church in Philippi, uh, he has focused and rejoiced in his own situation. The, 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 the focus has been on him, not in some big-headed way. Uh, we, you read that chapter, you can see that the Apostle Paul's anything but a big head. But rather, he was saying that as a prisoner in Rome, that had presented him with an opportunity to advance the gospel of Christ. In Caesar's court, no less. And also, he emboldened other Christians in their own evangelistic endeavours by his chains. Then there were people preaching the gospel for various reasons, some good reasons, some not so good reasons for vainglory and and whatever, but at least the gospel was being proclaimed. And it was Paul's prayer that the gospel would be furthered and the Lord Jesus Christ would be magnified. We see that very clearly in chapter 1. From now on, the focus will be upon the recipients of this letter, the Philippians, to whom Paul said in verse 27, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, in other words, it makes no difference whether Paul is with them or not, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We've got the gospel twice in that one verse. The things that Paul said to the Philippians and that we shall consider this morning apply equally to us assembled here. I'm not going to keep making applications to us. Right from the off, I'm going to say to you that what Paul said to the Philippians, he says to us about 2,000 years later. As such, dear Christians, you are to let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. That's what Paul said to them. That's what he says to us. Where conversation is not just the things that you say, but also the things that you do. Indeed, some of the Bible versions have conduct rather than conversation. So, in other words, your conversation is how, or rather what you say, but also how you behave as Christians. Paul said, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ is not a set of rules, it's not a set of regulations, neither is it about what we must do. So don't don't look at this and think, oh dear, I really have to be doing these things and, and treat it as... Uh, as the law that you must do and everything depends upon you doing these things that's not what it's about rather it's about what Christ has done for us his work of redemption 
Christ fulfilling God's law for all who believe in him. Christ bearing away your sins, dear Christians, in his body on the cross. It's all about Jesus, the gospel. But having said that, there is an acceptable code of conduct for all who profess to be saints of the Most High God. If you are a believer, what you say and what you do ought to be consistent, ought to be worthy of your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As a Christian, you are saved by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your faith ought to be seen in your conduct and it ought to be heard in what you say. You falsely profess the name of Christ Jesus if you do not live out the implications of the gospel. As Spurgeon said, we are delighted to preach good, high doctrine and to insist upon it that salvation is of grace alone. But we are equally delighted to preach good, high practice and to insist upon it that a grace which does not make a man better than his neighbours is a grace which will never take him to heaven, nor render him acceptable before God. After all, when you think about it, you profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are saying that you are a born-again Christian, or you are a new creature in Christ, a new creation in Christ, that's what you are, dear Christian. Old things have passed away, behold, all things are become new. I needn't go beyond that, really. If old things have passed away, all things have become new. Your conduct, what you say, what you do, ought to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I will go further and I will say that as the indwelling Holy Spirit works in you to will and to do of good of God's good pleasure, there ought to be audible and visible differences between you and your unregenerate neighbour. There really ought to be differences. For one thing, with your thoughts upon your Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, not all the time, But much of the time, your conversation will inevitably be about, be about Jesus. It makes sense, doesn't it? We talk about the things or the people that we love and that we think about. You think about Jesus, you talk about Jesus. Your heavenly father listens into those conversations when you, dear Christian, Uh, are talking about Jesus, talking one to another about the Lord Jesus Christ. Your Heavenly Father, he hears and he hearkens to those conversations. He, He hears and he hearkens to them that fear the Lord and that think upon his name. As for your conduct, when the world is busy delighting in wickedness, you, who is someone who is in Christ ought to love the things that God loves, you ought to hate the things that God hates, and your prayer ought to be along those lines, as you recognise, well, I know what I love, 
I know what I hate, but my conduct and my conversation doesn't always match those things. And it's quite frustrating, isn't it? So what do you do? You pray. You pray about it. You pray that God would deliver you from the evil and that you would have a closer walk with Jesus. You pray that God would make you more like the Lord Jesus Christ. You pray that you would deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, that you would live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of your great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for you that he might redeem you from all iniquity and purify unto himself a particular people zealous of good works. This is your prayer. As a Christian, the, the, the rest of the world don't pray these things. They don't desire to have these things. You are different as a Christian. This world is not your home. (coughs) If you have managed to process all or at least some of what I've been saying so far about your conversation and your conduct and indeed your prayers, reflecting your profession of faith, then you may also appreciate that you ought to stand out like a sore (coughs) thumb. Stand out like a sore thumb for all the right reasons as someone who is very, very different from the rest. Whilst others curse God as they raise their fists towards heaven, you bless the Lord, your God and Heavenly Father, for forgiving you all your iniquities, for healing all your diseases, for redeeming your life from destruction and for surrounding you with loving kindness and tender mercies. I'm quoting Psalm 103 yet again. Lovely psalm. Read it, Christian. Feast upon it. Feast upon what the Lord has done for you. As a Christian, you have the light of the gospel, and you are the light of the world. You are not to hide that light under a bushel, but rather you are to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. A light shining bright for Jesus in this dark world of sin. That's you. Looking at verse 27 again. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In chapter 1, Paul had already talked about fellowship in the gospel, Defence and confirmation of the gospel, the furtherance of the gospel. At the beginning of verse 27, he talked about having conversation or conduct that is worthy of the gospel. And now in the second part of verse 27, he talks about striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. 
Whether Paul was with the saints at Philippi or not, as I've already said, it didn't really make any difference. The conduct of all of them was nevertheless to be worthy of the gospel to the end that all of them would strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. As such, the same theme as last week continues in today's sermon. And that is about the church magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Striving together to magnify Jesus. That can only happen when there is unity. Especially when you consider that the church is what? It's one body with Jesus as the head. The church is a vine the true vine and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the main stem and he provides provides that constant flow of grace to the branches, to the Christians. And the church is one spiritual house and every Christian is a living stone in that spiritual building. We are one in the Lord Jesus Christ. There ought to be that unity. I was thinking, uh, I don't want to bring the affairs of the world into this or politics or anything else, but you know, we all know what's happened just recently. The United Kingdom is now out of the European Union. What lies ahead for the, the next year is a lot of um, haggling, a lot of arguing, deals to be made and struck and, and so on. But um, the flag was lowered. The UK is now out of the European Union. It's happened. But then one would have to wonder, will that be that unity in the United Kingdom? Because that really is needed now. People need to unite. Is that really going to happen? Well, we can wait and see. But... Whether or not there is unity in the United Kingdom, there really ought to be unity in the church for the sake of the gospel. Standing fast in one spirit and with one mind, striving together, happens when you serve one another in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've already seen last week uh, the, Paul, he really showed what joy is, J-O-Y, Jesus first, and then others, and then last of all, yourselves. That's a, that's a recipe for joy, and it is also a recipe for unity. Jesus first, others, and then last of all, yourself. Standing fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel isn't simply about standing shoulder to shoulder with everyone who professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in this Christ-hating world. We need to be very careful, don't we? We need to be very, very discerning. Wouldn't it be lovely if everyone who professed faith in Jesus was united and... um, for the furtherance of the gospel, but that's not how it is. You are not called to stand with Mormons who believe in salvation by works. As for Jesus, as for their Jesus, he and Satan are spirit brothers. This is what they teach. 
that Jesus and Satan are spirit brothers and all of us were born as their siblings in heaven. It's really quite weird, to say the least, the stuff that they believe in. How can you strive with them for the gospel? Neither are you called to stand with the Jehovah's Witnesses for whom Jesus is one and the same as the Archangel Michael. And then there is the Roman Catholic Church which has a gospel that teaches the necessity of receiving a final purification in a place called purgatory despite the clear teaching in the Bible that Jesus has purged our sins, all our sins, those who believe in him. Therefore you need to be careful about whom you stand with, you need to be clear that the gospel you believe is a biblical gospel. There are other gospels. You look at uh, Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul invokes uh, the curse of God upon those who preach another gospel. You are to defend the gospel against attack. As for what the faith of the gospel is that you are defending it must surely include the Trinity of the Godhead. Not all professing Christians believe in the triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, which includes the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ and it includes the divinity of the indwelling comforter, the Holy Spirit. The gospel includes denying that we are all essentially good and we are to defend the truth that the heart is in fact deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You you stand together as one for the gospel truth that our own righteousnesses are like filthy rags before God. And you defend the truth of election That salvation from sin is by grace alone, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not something that can be earned. It is a gift to all whom God has chosen and given to his son. And so it goes on. If standing fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, sounds like a battle... I deliberately chose onward Christian soldiers marching us to war because standing fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel in a Christ-hating world, it is a battle. It's not easy. But you are not expected to fight that battle in your own strength. You have no strength. In fact, the weakness of God is greater than any strength that you possess. Therefore, we are to strive together for the faith of the gospel with God's enabling. Just look at the last chapter, uh, the chapter rather before Philippians, the last, the, the last chapter of the book before Philippians. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to read chapter 6 verses 10 through to 17 it's about going into battle against principalities and powers 
uh, uh, the spiritual battles that we have, primarily against sin. We have that daily battle against the sin, don't we, Christian? But nevertheless, look at um, how we go into battle each day. Verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, or therefore, take unto you the whole armour of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So we've got the battle armour that we are to wear as Christians when we go out to battle and we meet with the devil. But he comes to us in various ways, doesn't he? He comes in various ways and he tempts us, he accuses us and he, he, he would seek to frighten us and do all sorts of things to us in various ways. And we do so in the strength, in the might of the Lord with the the armour that the Lord provides for us. Okay, I'm coming back now to Philippians chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 28 through to 30. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me, and now here to be in me. Who are the enemies of the gospel? Well, we we looked at uh, one of them in that passage in Ephesians (laughs) chapter 6, in verse 11 there, put on the whole armour of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The devil is the god of this world and as a roaring lion he walks about seeking whom he may devour. He doesn't go around looking for unregenerate people, people who have no interest in the gospel. Not at all. He walks around like like a roaring lion seeking Christians, professing Christians to devour. But guess what? He is no match for the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his death on the cross and by his resurrection was victorious over sin, over Satan and over death. So we step out each day in the strength of the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his grace. Also, there are violent persecutors who will stop at nothing 
to silence the furtherance of the gospel truth and the defence of it and the things that they do. They, they, they're doing the lusts of their father, the devil. Oh, the terrible persecution that we read of and hear of in this world. Persecution, even unto death. Wicked men doing the lusts of their father, the devil. And within the church, within the church, that's right, you heard me. There are many false teachers who persecute those who are trying to live in sincerity and truth to follow the Lord Jesus Christ along the narrow way. You may well find them yourselves. Hopefully not in this church, but they do abound. False teachers preaching a false gospel. You're standing fast. You're striving for the faith of the gospel. The persecution of you by the enemies of the gospel and their failure to intimidate you, their failure to make you scared signify two things. When you get that persecution, you're not scared. You don't run away. You don't hide. You don't put your light under a bushel. What does it signify? First of all, that their hostility towards the gospel of Christ, rather than their obedience to that gospel, that's a sign that they are heading for perdition or everlasting destruction. Also, there's nothing quite like persecution and suffering for the sake of the gospel of Christ to serve as proof of your own salvation. Let's have a look at verse 29 there again. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but also to suffer for his sake. In verse 29, suffering for Christ's sake, it sits alongside believing in him. In the same verse. The Bible commentator, William Hendrickson, described them as a double blessing from God. Believing and suffering, a double blessing from God. That's what Hendrickson said, but uh, Jesus, he said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, when they insult you, when they persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Lord Jesus Christ speaking to his apostles there who followed on from the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. Great is your reward in heaven. But that is the applicable to all who profess the name of Jesus. When you suffer persecution, you know that you are blessed. When you look at the Beatitudes, you can put a tick against the Beatitudes. Well, yeah, that applies to me. That applies to me. Let's have a look at them quickly. I can't remember them off the top of my head. Matthew chapter 5. 
I'm just, I just want to convince you that um, being blessed when you suffer for Christ's sake, it wasn't just something for the apostles of old. Okay. Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's you, poor in spirit. You realise what a wretched person I am. And that was the grace of God that day when you recognised how poor, how spiritually bankrupt you were. And you cried out to God for mercy. You go through all those blessings. I'm not going to go through them all now. But you should be able to say, well, that applies to me as a Christian. Well, then it doesn't end with that. Well, let's have a look how it continues here. Look at verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you put a tick against that one as well or not? And then verse 11, I've already quoted it. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. These are the marks of being a Christian. If you are a standard bearer for the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the world hates, you will inevitably experience persecution in one form or another. That is given unto you just as your faith is given unto you. I'm back in Philippians chapter 1. We'll look at verse 30. Having the same conflict which he saw in me are now here to be in me. The persecutions that the Philippians could expect to be on the receiving end of, and that is the portion of all who belong to Jesus, is nothing more than what the Apostle Paul experienced. And let's remember, Paul rejoiced in it. He rejoiced in his sufferings. Ultimately, God sends persecution even unto death to his redeemed and he does so for various reasons why does God send us persecutions why are we to rejoice in the, uh, when we're persecuted it seems like a strange thing really doesn't it rejoicing when you're persecuted well when you are persecuted remember for Christ's sake that is remember that it does come from God your heavenly father And why does he send it? To refine his people as silver and gold are refined in the the furnace, rather. God is refining you. Getting rid of all the rubbish, all all the dross, all the impurities. And making you more and more like Jesus. Sanctification. That's something to rejoice about. Also, your faith is being built up in persecutions. Why? Because you looked at Jesus to be with you in the fiery furnace. That can't be a bad thing. If it takes persecution for us to look heavenward to where our help comes, that has got to be a good thing. 
Last of all, when you are on the receiving end of insults or persecution for Christ's sake, remember that the Apostle Paul has been there. He's got the badge. And not only the Apostle Paul, many others besides. In fact, all true Christians have been there to varying degrees. Not some, but all Christians to varying degrees have experienced persecution. And God has graciously ordained that suffering for the good of his children and most of all for his glory. But most of all, for you this is, rejoice as you recognise that you are partaking in the suffering of your Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who knew a thing or two about suffering, didn't he? Jesus. Jesus, who had laid upon him by God your iniquity when he was wounded for your transgressions, when he was bruised for your iniquities, when he was nailed to a wooden cross, when he was lifted up to die. Remember Jesus as you go forward each day holding that banner, the royal standard of King Jesus for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of God. Amen.